to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Almost two years ago, in one of our early episodes, we talked to Joe Houston. He's the CEO over at GiveDirectly, and he was telling us about GiveDirectly's basic income experiment that they were getting ready to launch in Kenya at that point. Given it has been so long, we thought it would be good to catch up with Joe and see how things were progressing so far with the pilot. So I spoke to Joe Houston uh, about how things are going and some of the new work that GiveDirectly is, is doing. So here's my conversation with Joe Houston at GiveDirectly. All right. Uh, Joe Houston, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you guys for having me back. So uh, this will be a review for some of our listeners, but could you just start by giving a quick overview of GiveDirectly's Village Pilot Program and what stage it's in right now? Yeah. So, you know, GiveDirectly in general only ever does one thing. It delivers unconditional cash transfers. And then along the way, as we're sort of delivering those cash transfers, something we're often doing is testing how they work, whether it's do they work at all or do particular structures for particular types of people work better or worse than other structures. Um, And so we're constantly experimenting with different types of cash transfers. As we saw the kind of debate and conversation about base income grow a lot over the last few years, we saw it as an opportunity for us to uh, test a, a universal basic income. And so when we talked two years ago, we were at the very beginning stages of fundraising for that project and kind of sketching out how it could work from a study perspective and, and you know what sizes the cash transfers would be and things like that. Since then, about two years ago, and so a few months after we talked, we kicked off the sort of first One Village pilot. And so this was one village with about 100 adults, each receiving monthly cash payments of about 20 US dollars um, with the promise that those will continue going out for 12 years. And so we've now been able to follow these people over the course of about two years of those monthly payments. In tandem, we sort of continue to fundraise and work on the research design for the full study. That sort of enrollment for that full study, which will be over 20,000 adult recipients and over 200 villages, kicked off at the end of last year and wrapped up at the beginning of this year. And uh, we should have the kind of first round of follow-up results, something like early to mid next year. So following up with people after a, a year of cash payments. Great. And just generally, are things going as planned? Have you had to modify things as they as they go along? Or are you pretty much sticking to the original design? Um, from a design perspective, things have largely gone as planned. Um, we had a, one sort of design question we got to test with the pilot was whether or not individually targeted payments would be seen as kind of threatening to households. That was probably my biggest almost operational or implementation worry was that it would be seen as trying to sort of pay each individual adult versus paying households or families as a group would be seen as, yeah, like GiveDirectly is trying to sort of shake up family structures or empower one person over another in a couple. Um, And so that was interesting to see play out in the pilot where when we asked people if that was okay, basically, um, their answer was that it was better, that it was nice that uh, um, people got to sort of receive and spend their own money on the priorities they thought were most important and so that it was helpful for family relations and things like that. Um, And so that was a sort of positive thing out of the pilot. Uh, The main kind of operational hiccup we saw was um, for the full study, because it's fairly large, you know, 20,000 people, more than 200 villages, 100 extra included as control group villages. We didn't want to overlap with the Kenyan national elections, which were scheduled for August last year. 
Um, basically, we didn't want to get caught up in the campaigning period and confuse people about what we're doing and what the money is for and some things like that. And so we stopped a few months short of that August round of elections. And then they ended up having to redo the elections uh, a few months later. And so we had to kind of pause our work for about five or six months or so. And so that was the biggest operational hiccup, which delayed us a bit. Um, but otherwise, things are mostly proceeding as planned. Gotcha. And so you mentioned the you know, the, the finding around couples that they don't find this threatening to their family. Are there other findings you can share either anecdotally or, or from the data you're collecting? Yeah, you know, I, I should sort of caveat that, you know, most of what we're learning so far is anecdotal, that um, the sort of full structure because of how it's the full study because of how it's structured in terms of its sample size and that it has a control group will be able to kind of provide the most uh, sort of rigorous answers on, on I think all the questions we care about from uh, about a UBI. Um, but from the pilot, it's been interesting to see, yeah, a handful of things. Um, a, another question I was curious about, which I think relates to you know, comparing a UBI versus a negative income tax or other sort of more targeted approaches to welfare or cash systems was how people would perceive uh, a universal basic income. And, you know, this is a village where um, in absolute terms, on average, very, you know, people are very, very poor, uh, but there's still a decent amount of income inequality. You know, the sort of richest person has a greenhouse and the poorest person you know, as a family in one room with a house that's falling over, you know, sort of give you a sense of that there's still pretty meaningful ranges of wealth and income. And so we asked people whether it seemed fair that everyone was receiving the same amount, regardless of need, that GiveDirectly wasn't doing any attempt uh, to try to sort of suss out need. Um, and the reaction from people was pretty interesting, that they thought it was better that GiveDirectly not meddle and sort of try to pick winners and losers, that that was... Um, sort of fairer or more likely to be correct in their eyes and also kind of better for social uh, kind of community relations. And, and so that was kind of funny and I think interesting to see and, and relevant for the kind of broader conversations with UBI. Related to that, I think another thing I've seen is um, conversations about the payments and how different people are using them and how people can pool them together are just sort of immediately a little bit less awkward than in programs where GiveDirectly, for whatever reason, has targeted specific individuals within a community. Um, I think there's this dynamic that everyone knows that everyone is receiving, and, and so it's a lot easier to sort of talk about the issue. And so, you know, we've seen people do things like form savings groups, as an example, where you can sort of imagine writing down a ledger where every month people contribute some portion of their transfer that they're getting from GiveDirectly, and then every month some one person gets a big payout equal to the sum of all those portions of transfers. And so it's a way to turn stream payments into lump sums. It's a, it's a way of savings. Um, and so we saw those crop up basically instantly after announcing the program. And I, and I wonder how fast that would have developed uh, if we had gone with a sort of more targeted or means-tested approach. Yeah, and that gets into something I wanted to ask you about, which is if you're seeing these either village-wide effects or synergistic effects of everyone getting it, um, and whether that's on the, the economy of the entire village or you know, sort of group projects like the one you described, are there any more you can share? From what I've seen so far, it's been mostly those savings groups, and basically every demographic within this village has created one, you know, the sort of more elderly women, the young people, and so there's been a lot of kind of trust-based savings groups pop up. I haven't seen as much 
kind of pooling together in you know in infrastructure or something like that. Um, but th but that's definitely something we'll want to keep watching for both in the village and in the full study. And I know it's a little early to say, but do you think this this pilot program has affected the basic income conversation more broadly? and or the charitable giving world in a new way that your work hadn't before? I think that for the basic income conversation, something we've been trying to do, and maybe you guys can tell us how we're doing, is uh, there aren't that many people receiving a basic income. And so both with the pilot recipients and with kind of GiveDirectly's other UBI recipients, we've been trying to kind of amplify their voices, ask them, okay, there's this academic debate about whether a basic income should be universal, what do you think? Uh, or should we target individual adults or families, what do you think? Or how are you spending it? That, you know, so much of the debate I think is very philosophical or, or theoretical. Um, and we're in a kind of unique position to give, you know, some of the only basic income recipients out there a microphone to sort of ask them, well, what do you think about these different debates? Um, and so when we've written about the pilot, that's been a big goal of ours. And uh, you can also sort of on our website at, on GD Live filter for UBI recipients and sort of just hear how they're describing their priorities or their spending and things like that, which I, which I think is a pretty cool perspective to bring to a debate that, yeah, otherwise feels like a sort of broader political philosophy debate or something like that. And so I think that's been good. I think the other sort of push we've been doing, which I think complements that that push is trying to frame the debate around evidence, which both, uh, which I think has two prongs. The first one is um, so much of the kind of questions and assertions about basic income apply to cash transfers broadly. People on the sort of pessimist side, people are worried that people will stop working or start drinking or spend poorly. And we actually have, you know, a remarkable amount of evidence on recipients of cash transfers doing not those things that, you know, in tons of randomized control trials from all over the world, that's a largely tested question. And it's largely played out that um, people don't end up doing those things people are worried about. Um, I think people also have a lot of hopes for a basic income that the money could get spent on businesses or schooling or health expenditure or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think we have a lot of evidence on those things as well that um, sort of testing different structures of cash with different types of outcomes. And so I think the kind of first prong of what we've been trying to do is contextualize the debate about basic income in terms of what priors we should have given everything we know about cash transfers broadly, which is there's a pretty good bet here in terms of at least the kind of household level effects of giving people cash. Um, and I think that leads to the second prong, which is, okay, well, what are we actually testing here? What is unknown about a basic income? Which I think is often a little bit different from the sort of questions that dominate the conversation, you know, spending on alcohol or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, your, your website is a really fantastic resource both for the evidence and also the, those anecdotes about how it's affecting real lives. Uh, GiveDirectly is expanding their work in some interesting ways. Uh, so I want to touch on a few of those. Um, can you tell us about the work you're doing with Ugandan refugees? Yeah, I think what's neat about cash transfers, which applies to basic income, but also broadly, is that it can help force a policy question, which is, in general, we have a policy goal of helping a certain group of people. Um, and we, because we care about it, we've attached a budget to it. Maybe it's a billion dollars a year or something like that. Um, are our efforts better than what the people we're trying to help could do if we just gave them the money instead? And so 
we've done a few different versions of that in more development contexts. We, you know, we worked in uh, post-hurricane Texas and Puerto Rico, which tested in a different type of context. And the sort of context for how we help refugees is very, very similar, where um, a lot of our systems for helping refugees globally were set up post-World War II and were set up for refugee crises that were fairly different um, from the crises we deal, deal with today. Um, Uganda, you may or may not know, has taken in a ton of refugees, more in total than all of Europe did last year um, from places like South Sudan and the DRC. And with these types of crises, people end up staying for you know a decade or more. And so these are very prolonged, prolonged crises. And as a result, people are often starting their new lives in a refugee settlement versus being somewhere sort of temporarily before moving on. Um, and our model for helping those people is, is sort of matched to a kind of older, more acute crisis model. And so we're very good at keeping people alive with shelter or food or things like that, um, but not as good at sort of launching people, giving them the resources they need to make kind of big investments in their new lives. And so something we've been testing um, in Uganda is giving people large grants, 750 to $1,000. Um, as usual, letting them spending it on whatever they want and sort of seeing how that plays out. And so we kicked off a pilot at the beginning of this year with about a few thousand refugees in one settlement in Uganda. And we're gearing up for a larger uh, experimental evaluation with more than 10,000 refugees uh, testing the kind of same basic model there. And also, you mentioned Texas and Puerto Rico in their hurricane recovery efforts. Uh, this is a different context than you're they're usually working in. Usually, it's you know with these very poor villages where twenty dollars a month goes very far. Um, whereas Texas, that's uh, not necessarily the case. So, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to work there and um, and, and any results you can share? Yeah, and so we chose to work in Texas and then then in Puerto Rico once Maria hit. Um, because one, you could sort of see everywhere on TV and in the news, the kind of devastation that the hurricanes caused. Um, and what was encouraging was that a lot of people wanted to help, you know, there was this kind of groundswell of support and I, I think a pretty strong eagerness to try to help out, uh, especially for Americans to help out fellow Americans. Um, and then what was interesting is that there was also a lot of frustration with the ways that those people had to help. Um, you know, I, I think this was a time when people were expressing a lot of frustration about the Red Cross. Um, and so it felt like an opportunity to, to at least sort of provide a proof of concept that one model for helping these people is you could just send them cash and they could buy what they wanted. Um, and I think especially for the kind of disaster relief uh, industry or context, that's helpful because, you know, when I went to Texas, there were warehouses filling up with goods that were being sent to help people, you know, whether it was canned goods or I saw industrial sized bottles of lotion. Um, somebody had shipped a couch from Wyoming. And, and so our sort of traditional model of helping these people is very much sending stuff. And that might make us a lot of sense in the sort of initial 72 hours after a disaster. Um, but after that, often stores are opening up, you know, ATM machines are opening up, and people have pretty varied needs. Um, and so it was a good opportunity to sort of provide a kind of proof of contact, a concept there. Um, and so we ended up delivering delivering debit cards to people in Texas and Puerto Rico of about $1,500. Um, and I think the results were interesting. It, you're right that, that, you know, a dollar goes a lot less far in, in Texas or Puerto Rico. 
Um, and so the role of that $1,500, I think, was different than, than the role either a basic income or a lump sum grant plays in East Africa. Um, what, what I saw it kind of being was much more of a gap filler that people had access to different types of support, whether it's you know immediate support from the Red Cross or FEMA down the road or support from family members. Um, but you know after all of that support, there was often little things falling through the gap. What gaps? Whether it was somebody needed new clothes or they wanted to buy a washer dryer or needed to get a head start on their home and so needed construction materials. And the sort of unconditional cash, I think, played a pretty good role because people could put it wherever they needed it. And so the sort of main takeaway we saw from asking people about what they were spending on and things like that was how varied, even with everyone experiencing the same crisis, how varied the spending patterns were across people, um, which I think demonstrates a lot of the value of cash, that it's enabling that type of flexibility. And yeah, what was the public reaction to you know working in um, a more developed country? Well, one thing that was interesting was we have a lot of practice, and we talked about this last time, introducing ourselves to um, the communities where we're working um, in East Africa. And I think we weren't exactly sure how we'd be received in you know East Texas or in Puerto Rico. Um, and it was funny to see how many of the same issues cropped up that handing out cash is, is weird and, you know, and people think it, it's going to be a scam. And so you have to take the same type of tactics, whether it's introducing yourself through the mayor's office or through the local church or whatever it is. And so, you know, with my kind of operations hat on, that was the sort of most interesting thing to see was how much of the kind of same communication and introduction strategies um, and sort of respect for the communities that we have practiced a lot in, in East Africa were required to kind of uh, get people to accept us in Texas and Puerto Rico as well. Yeah, so basically building community support and, uh, and working from there. Right, and how universal the weirdness of cash is. And, and lastly, um, I wanted to give you a chance to touch on um, the, the work you just started doing in Liberia, getting back to, to Africa. Um, so you, you just started working there. Do you, anything you can share about you know, the unique challenges there or what what made you decide, what made you directly decide to start working in Liberia? Yeah, and so I'll be intentionally a, a little bit vague here, but in Liberia and in a couple of other countries we're entering this year, uh, DRC and Malawi, we've been working with one of the larger government aid funders. And for them, what we've been implementing is a very uh, literal application of that question I, I said cash can help pose earlier, that we have this budget, are, are we outperforming just letting the people we're trying to help spend it? Um, and so as a result, with this funder, we've designed, I think, something like six or seven randomized controlled trials across Rwanda, Liberia, Malawi, and DRC, um, testing different structures of cash with different populations, and basically seeing in what areas are the sort of programs we've chosen to invest in, invest in outperforming uh, what the people could do themselves, and in what areas are they not, um, which is a pretty, I think, exciting use case for cash as a kind of benchmark or tool uh, for large aid, aid funders. And so that's what kind of brought us to Liberia in the first place. Um, Liberia, I think, is one of the more challenging payments environments we've worked in. Um, weirdly, maybe after the, the U.S., <laughs> um, because we benefit a lot from mobile money in the other places where we've worked. Um, but I think the sort of initial challenges in Liberia have been us kind of working through um, how it will make sense to pay people. You know, these are environments where 
lots, many of the roads are impassable for large periods of the year because uh, because of the sort of rainy season. Um, and so it's been, and while we've dealt with different types of remoteness in the past, um, this has been a sort of more extreme challenge of that. And so I'm curious and excited to see how we kind of experiment and, and test with different uh, payment modes as, as part of uh, delivering cash there. Well, those are the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you would like to add? I would give a plug for searching UBI on our website at, at GD Live and just seeing what um, basic income recipients are saying about their experience. I, I think that's a pretty cool um, opportunity, and it's, it's frankly also just fun. That was Owen Poindexter talking to Joe Houston from GiveDirectly. So I always find it interesting, uh, the logistics of cash transfers and, and also the basic question of what are they good for and if, if anything, what are they not good for um, as a, a default in terms of aid and, and charitable giving, you know, can cash, um, does it beat other forms of, of helping people? And I think by and large it does. Yeah, I mean, we've, I feel like there's been solid evidence for a while now that the cash in at least certain situations adds more value, no pun intended, than a lot of the traditional in-kind approaches to supporting people. But one thing that I continue to be surprised by is that on one hand, it seems like, oh, we've actually done a lot of experiments now. We, we've done these pilots. We have a good sense of what will happen. And yet every time someone does a new one, it seems like there's still new insights that we gain. So there, there, there is, there's still more about the space that, that we're, over, that we're uh, being able to understand as, as we continue with these pilots and with these experiments. Yeah, along those lines, I, was, I always find that cash is, works even better than I think it's going to. And one example of that was the one that Joe gave about, um, you know, will this affect social structures in the village? And that can, you know, that's was an issue in the U.S. when they were, were doing uh, trials in the '70s. Um, but you, you'd think it could really threaten, um, you know, the, the social fabric if you give people a new level of independence. And from what he said, it's it's um, everyone prefers it this way that everyone that individual adults each get their their cash transfer. Yeah, I thought the the takeaways so far, or at least the observations so far around universality were particularly interesting because that is the thing here that is new. That if you look at the existing pilots to date, there's been almost no saturation studies. And so the fact that they are doing this universally at the village level, that is, I mean, from the get-go, the idea was that's going to help us to better understand and learn more about those effects. So, but yeah, like you said, I thought it was really, really interesting to see what the reactions on that were so far and that there, at least in the context of these Kenyan villages, people really seem to appreciate the universality. And yeah, I mean, what can we extrapolate from that as far as understanding how, how folks elsewhere might, might or might not perceive it the same way? Yeah, and I'm hoping that you know, all these questions that GiveDirectly is asking make their way more and more into the charitable aid world generally. Uh, that question he kept bringing up of does, is cash an improvement on you know, what else we might be doing for these people. Um, I think it takes a, a lot of uh, keeping your ego in check if you know, you're an organization that gives cows or mosquito nets or clothing or whatever it is um, to, to ask yourself, would we be just better off giving people money? Uh, you know, in some cases, I'm sure there are cases where um, like a mosquito net is more valuable than, than the cash it costs. But I think in a lot of cases, 
you know, people would, would have to ask themselves a question that's sort of threatening to the organization. Right, and it, it seems like that's, that is a process that's been happening for a decade now that, and you are starting to see some of these more traditional organizations gradually get more on board with that. The fact that the Red Cross is now using cash as part of its way of supporting people and families in struggling situations. So it's, it, right, we're, we're on that gradual curve of, of adoption and there will probably still be resistance on some fronts for, course, for quite yeah. a while, but, but hopefully less and less over time. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review if you can. Um, They're the service of your choice. And please tell your friends so we can keep expanding this conversation. See you next week.